A few episodes back, I talked a little about a font called Comic Sans and gave some reasons why it's a good idea to avoid it if at all possible. You may be interested, however, to know how the infamous font got its start as well as the guy who created it. I'll get into that. Plus, book jacket design. It can oftentimes make or break a book's marketability. Today I'll go ahead and break down the top 10 most common book cover design mistakes so you can be sure to avoid them on your next book project. All this and more on The Rightly Design Show. No man who cares about originality will ever be original. It's the man who's only thinking about doing a good job or telling the truth who becomes really original and doesn't notice. You're listening to the fusion of form and function. This is the Rightly Designed Show. Hello and welcome to the program. My name is Thomas and this is the Rightly Designed Show. So a few episodes back, I took a little bit of time to talk about a specific font in the context of typography. And that font was Comic Sans. Now, Comic Sans, as you might, you may have heard me mention back in that episode, is something that I generally recommend stay far from pretty much any design project. So there's a couple of different reasons for this. Number one, it's just a, if, if you're interested in using an actual comic style font, there's actually a lot, a lot of other fonts out there and typefaces out there that seem to do a little bit of a better job of actually replicating that, that old style comic book look. But the biggest reason is because a lot of time, a lot of the contexts in which the font is typically used is in a, an area where it's not really relevant. So, like you'll see, uh, you know, I don't know, a flyer up at the post office or at your locally or at your local grocery store or something that's you know talking about a lost kitten or puppy or something like that. Typically, if you're going to use a Comic Sans font or a font that is similar to Comic Sans, it's generally going to be used in something that's a little bit more lighthearted in nature. So I think part of the reason why the font has actually become so infamous is because not so much the font itself and the way that it was designed, although some argue that it's not necessarily the best, the most well-designed comic font, but the way it's been used I think is why it has gotten such a, a bad uh, a bad reputation, not only amongst designers, but pretty much anybody who works with typefaces or who works in any sort of print medium. So I recently came across, though, a really interesting video, and this video was put out by a YouTube channel called Great Big Story, and I actually came across it on Dig, Dig of all places, which I had actually forgotten existed, but Dig is still around and very much alive. Um, but yeah, it was a really interesting video that broke down a little bit of the history of the font and got some interesting perspective from the in, the individual who actually created it and who's actually responsible for creating a lot of the typefaces or a lot of the fonts that we've come to know uh, from using Microsoft's products, specifically Word. So what I wanted to do is actually just play a short snippet of that, and that's just the audio of it, uh, just to give you a little bit of an idea. And again, just a really interesting look into the history of Comic Sans and the controversy surrounding it. So here's that. How did a font both loathed and cherished come to dominate the world? My name is Vincent Conair. I was a typographic engineer at Microsoft. I contributed to lots of fonts like Webdings, Trebuchet, and most notably Comic Sans. So it's all my fault. To understand Comic Sans, you have to understand its creator. 
Years before his work at Microsoft, Vincent was working on his undergrad in New York City. We went to university in the 1980s. I was a quite young, rebellious, fine art student. He'd spend a lot of time in art spaces. And I'd walk through the galleries of the old Soho and look at paintings and, and artwork. To him, what separated good art from bad art was this simple benchmark. If you didn't notice them, I considered that was bad. And if you did notice, it was good, because at least they made you stop and look. It either shocked you or you really liked it. But if you didn't even notice and you just walked through, it was a disaster. Vincent would take that philosophy to Microsoft, where he was challenged to make a playful font for a program called Microsoft Bob. And so I looked at Batman and the Watchmen and pretty much tried to draw on the computer something that looked similar to that, but not copying it. So that's how Comic Sans was made, by just looking at comic books and comic characters. Not everyone was a fan of the font's quirks. My boss, Robert Norton, he didn't really like the font, and he thought it should be a bit more typographic. And I argued and said, no, it should be weird. And, and I thought it stood out, and it wasn't boring typography that's in, in a school book. Though the font didn't make it to the release of Microsoft Bob, it was eventually pre-installed on every Macintosh by 1996. I started to see it when it was in, in the wild, so to speak. The first one I remember was a neon sign over a store called Fun Stamps. That's when I realized it's going to get used any way anybody wants to use it. And that just snowballed from there. The font spread like wildfire in ways Vincent didn't even imagine. When I travel the world and see it in, on beach towels. War memorials. On bread. Street signs. On everything. Its overexposure even spurred a group of designers to start an anti-comic sans movement. I thought it was funny. I didn't really find it offensive. After all these years, Vincent finds himself content with how history will remember him. Okay, so there you have it. That is the history behind how Comic Sans got its start and a little bit of an interesting tidbit as to behind why it has become so infamous. A large reason, as I touched on in a previous episode, is due in part to the fact that it's not so much the way that it was designed. It was more having to do with the fact that it has been used so out of context or so out of the realm of what a comical style font should be used. Uh, in. And I think, yeah, so, you know, you'll go down to, and you may have seen this before, you'll go down, you know, to your grocery store or to all these different, you know, places that have just handmade or just, you know, Microsoft Word made posters and flyers for like a lost kitten. And it's in Comic Sans or a memorial. And it's like in Comic Sans, it's like, mm. the whole point of a Comic Sans font is it's supposed to be comical, it's supposed to be funny or lighthearted. So that's part of why it drives designers. Uh, pretty crazy is mainly because not only is it overused, but in the way that it's been used, it's been uh, used improperly. So I think that's part of it. And when it comes to if you are going, especially today with so many typefaces that have been designed and so many fonts that are available, uh, you can find if if a comic style font is something that you want, there's actually a lot of other ones that are a little bit better designed. But 
Um, anyways, it's still a little bit of an interesting story if, uh, behind Comic Sans and how some of the early typefaces or early fonts, especially with Microsoft, got their start. So if you'd like to check that video out, I just played a short set, uh, snippet of it, but I just recommend you check it out if you're at all interested in typography and fonts and that, that thing is interesting, that sort of thing's interesting to you. So I put a link to that in today's show notes where you can check out the video itself in its entirety. And you can find that today at rightlydesignedshow.com slash 42. But on the topic of typography and why I like to bring that up and, and highlight Comic Sans specifically is because typefaces are a tool, you know, in the arsenal or in the tool belt or in the toolkit of a designer. And so part of what makes a typeface or what makes typography so such a powerful design element is that every single different typeface has a different personality. So like, for example, Comic Sans, as I mentioned, is more comical, it's more lighthearted. So there's a context, a design context in which that makes sense. There's other typefaces that are more slender. There's other typefaces that are wider or some that have serifs and some that don't. Some that are decorative, some are more uh, for titling. And so it part of using typography to your advantage is getting familiar with what different typefaces mean, what different emotions they evoke, and what different styles they convey. So that's one of the things I like to underscore, you know, time and again throughout a lot of the different, you know, not only episodes I do here, but articles I write, is how important it is to put the focus of design in the right place. I can't tell you how many times in the past I've worked on a project and, you know, we've gone through revision runs and, you know, something will come along and I'll say, you know what, I really like the color purple or I like the font Papyrus, which, by the way, that's another Comic Sans one, so never use Papyrus, just as a side note. But I like the font Papyrus, so let's use that. Um, and I've done an episode on this, you know, in the past about the, the I like syndrome, but it puts the focus in the wrong place. Part of any advertising or any marketing or any design or branding campaign moving forward should never put the focus on personal likes and interests, unless the thing that you're creating is for you and for you alone. Instead, the goal is to set aside all personal likes and tastes and interests and to really consider whether that's from a visual aspect or whether that's from a, a branding philosophy as, uh, aspect, whatever it is, should always be done with the target customer in mind. You know, what is going to appeal to them? And not only the target customer, but the content itself. So if you, for example, if we're talking about a book cover, what is going to convey what is inside the book the best? Uh, is papyrus, is the color purple going to accomplish that goal? Because the end is creating a product, a package that successfully conveys what is inside, not necessarily what the author you know, prefers or likes. And the same thing goes for me. So, you know, I'm a designer and developer myself, and I work on a lot of different genres and styles and for a lot of different companies and brands. And part of being a, you know, a part of what you'll find in a good designer is the ability to set aside personal likes and interests and to always approach every project from the from the standpoint of trying to convey and to capture the heart and the essence of the thing that that person is working on. So one of the things I like to say is that if you look at a designer's portfolio and you notice a trend, or if you're able to look at a design and say, I know who did that, then that designer is not doing the best job at making sure that they are conveying the client's or the 
uh, the end user's goal as, they, as well as they should. Because when you start noticing trends in a portfolio, like, oh, look, all these look the same. What you're seeing reflected there is the designer's style. It's the designer's preference. It's what the designer likes to do. That's why there's a consistency. That's the common denominator. But when a design is being created wholly from the standpoint of accurately accentuating the content or the subject matter or the end client or the end customer, uh, then that's going to be dramatically unique and different from each design that was preceded it, uh, that preceded it. So a thing that I like to mention from time to time, just because it's good to keep in mind, uh, whether you're designing something yourself or you're working with a designer or you're just approaching different uh, aspects of building your brand, these things can be really helpful to keep in mind. So on the topic of design and design mistakes, I actually, today's main topic that I wanted to take a little bit of time to cover was the top 10 book cover design mistakes that I have noticed as I've been working on book cover designs in the industry. So if you've listened to the show for a little while, you know that I've worked in the publishing industry in some capacity for a little over 10 years now. So during that time, I've primarily focused on book cover design. So I've done a whole host of other things as well, you know, including brand identity design, logo design, uh, website development. But book cover design has, has been the, the practice that I've undertaken for the longest amount of time. And one of the things that I've learned throughout uh, working on a wide variety of book covers, whether that's for publishing houses or for independent authors, is that there's just this set of mistakes. And I won't even, I call them mistakes, but they're just things that consistently get requested that consistently lead to a more mediocre end result. So if you're someone like me, you're in the position where you see book covers on a regular basis. You know, it's just part of my daily workflow to take a look at what bestsellers are coming out. I will, you know, regularly stop by a Barnes and Noble, even if I'm not buying a book. Uh, which I usually end up doing, but even if I don't, sometimes I'm there just to take a look at what actual design trends are emerging amongst different books, especially amongst the best sellers. So in my time doing that, uh, you just start to hear and to see a lot of the same things uh, over and over and over again that just don't lead to the most compelling, memorable, and accurate book jacket designs, uh, especially when you hold them up and you can compare them to a lot of what the best sellers are doing. So part of the thing that I personally try to do when I'm taking on any book jacket design project is to make it fit in and yet stand out, fit in amongst the best sellers and yet stand out amongst the other books in that specific category. That's the challenge, but that's part of you know what will make an effective and powerful book cover design, whether it's a book jacket design for, an for a publishing house or whether it's for an independent author, somebody who's self-publishing. But I did want to take a little bit of time today just to go through some of these mistakes so that if you are working on a book currently or if you plan on publishing one or if you're self-publishing or working with a publisher, all these things will still apply and they'd be great things for you to keep in mind so you can make sure you, that you avoid them and get the uh, most powerful impacting book jacket design possible. Um, but before I get into those top 10 design mistakes, I did want to take a quick moment to mention something that I have available for free for you over at Rightly Designed. So I did mention this in the last couple of episodes, and it is a free assessment. So if you're currently building a brand, or even if you don't have a brand yet, but you want to build one, I have put together this free assessment that can help you judge and to get a pretty good idea of the current efficacy or the effectiveness of your brand. 
And so what this is, is it brings you through 10 simple questions and you just get to rate on a scale of one to 10 how accurately uh, that particular question applies to your brand. At the end, it gives you a little score so you can get a little bit of an idea where your, your brand strategy currently ranks amongst a number of other brands uh, in the industry according to a number of you know brand standards. Um, but in addition to that, after you take the assessment, there's a free PDF available to you with a number of kind of unique uh, brand building tips. So you get this PDF in addition to just getting a little bit of an idea and maybe some pointers of how you can improve your brand building efforts. If you don't already have a brand, so you know you're not, you don't yet have a brand that you've built, but you maybe want to build one in the future, you can actually just get the PDF itself. So I have that available to you as well. And you can find that at rightlydesigned.com slash brand dash tips. And that's where you can get the PDF all by itself. If you want to take the assessment, which uh, you also get the PDF at the end, uh, you can go to rightlydesigned.com slash assessment. Again, that's rightlydesigned.com slash assessment. Have a question for the show? Feel free to visit rightlydesigned.com slash question or call 888-727-1496. Okay, so today's main topic is the top 10 most common book cover design mistakes. So as I mentioned in the previous segment, I've been working in the, you know, the publishing industry for a while, specifically on book cover design. And one of the things I like to do from time to time, which is kind of fun, it's just kind of something I do as I'm looking over different book jackets, is I like to be able to make a guess within the first, I don't know, few seconds as to whether a book is self-published or traditionally published. Now, if you're not aware of the, the difference between the two, self-publishing just means that you pretty much undertake everything yourself. So as an author, you commission out the book cover design, the typesetting, the editing, and then you get that published yourself. And there are self-publishers out there, companies that do all that for you, but it's still self-publishing. So the idea is that you front all the costs, you pay for all the services. Traditional publishing house would be a actual publishing company like uh, well not publishing obviously there's self-publishing and there's traditional publishing houses but it's a publishing company with the model of actually buying work from an author and retaining all the rights so and then the author is paid royalties on the sales of that and a lot of times you know an author receives an advance for the manuscript and that sort of thing so like penguin or you know random house i think they're actually the same now that is a traditional publishing house uh, but anyways back to my original point i like to be able to try to tell the difference to see if this book is being self-published or if it is being traditionally published and I would say probably about nine times out of 10, I'm able to tell the difference. I'm able to just look at a book and be able to tell, okay, that one's self-published. Okay, that one's traditionally published. Now, the difference between a self-published and a traditionally published book is this. A traditional publishing house typically has on staff a design team and a marketing team, both of which are very well-versed and understand very well the art and science of what makes a good book jacket design. There's a ton of research that goes into this. There's, It is for that publisher in their own vested interest to ensure that that book jacket design is designed in such a way as to sell as many books as possible. Now, it's not to say that the self-published author doesn't have that same goal, 
Uh, however, they don't quite have the amount of resources and power behind that design as, say, would that traditional publishing house. So, for example, it's very common for a self-published author to just hire a designer or to go for something like 99designs or to hire a designer who doesn't necessarily understand or have in mind or have the experience of what makes an effective book jacket design. Because a lot of different other design practices are far removed from uh, from book jacket design. There's kind of a special culture and an unique, uh, a unique approach that goes into design designing a book jacket specifically. And so some of the mistakes I'm going to outline here are the keys that are the, the kind of telltale points that give me the indicator that it is self-published because they are, these are the things that I don't see traditional publishing houses doing. I typically see a self-published book that was designed by someone who may not necessarily be as aware or uh, akin to some of the uh, common mistakes that accompany book jacket designs and book jacket designs in general. So these are things that, as I mentioned, not only are they things I notice as I'm just going through different bookstores or as I'm looking through at, you know, you know, on Amazon or whatever context I'm in when I'm looking at book jacket designs, but also as I've worked with clients throughout the years, there's just certain requests that I receive over and over again. And a lot of times I'll go back and I'll explain kind of the reasoning behind, you know, maybe we should do it this way or we should change this or try this approach. Uh, but there's things that come up time and time again and out in nearly every context when these design mistakes are made, they lead to a more mediocre or, as I like to say, self-published looking book. So without any further delay, let's go ahead and jump right into it. So number one, the most common design mistake, and these aren't all necessarily in the order of their commonality, but this one probably is. Uh, but the number one most common mistake I see is making the subtitle too large. So from a design perspective, what you typically want is this order. The title, the author name, and then the subtitle in terms of typographical size. Out of all of those three elements, the title needs to be by far the most impacting and the most prominent. However, there is one instance where that's not the case. If you are a best-selling author and your name has more weight than the book's title itself, then you want to flip that. You want to reverse that. The title can be smaller than the author name. That's only if, from a marketing perspective, the author name has more weight, more selling weight to it than the title itself, then you'd want the author name to be bigger. But in about 99% of the time, or most cases, you want the title to dominate. And so what I see a lot of times is, you know, the request will come through or I'll see this on different books. I want to make the subtitle stand out a little bit more. So see, if you're ever using stand out and subtitle in the same sentence, you're probably on the wrong track because a subtitle is never, let me repeat, never meant to stand out. A subtitle is there only to clarify the title. The title itself is there to stand out because a lot of times what people are going to see is that title. And then they're going to, if they're interested in that title, if they're interested in that subject matter, they're going to pick it up and they're going to be able to read that subtitle. Now, what happens when we try to start making things that aren't supposed to stand out, stand out, then what ends up happening is nothing stands out. It's kind of like taking a paragraph of text 
and bolding a single word. Well, what happens when you do that? Our eyes are naturally inclined to be drawn towards that bold word, and that bold word is then emphasized. We notice that first. Now, what happens then if I bold all the words, the entire paragraph? Well, at that point in time, nothing stands out. Nothing, you know, our, there's nothing really that our eyes are drawn to. It's just a mess of words. You might as well not bold them at all. So that's a big reason from a design perspective why you don't want to try to make everything stand out because if you do that, nothing will. So again, just to kind of recap real briefly in terms of this is just a rule of thumb. Sometimes there's going to be situations where things might need to be, you know, skewed in one direction or another. But rule of thumb, the title should be by far the most prominent. Second should be the author name and third should be the subtitle. Okay, so the number two most common design, book jacket design mistake I've seen is making the author name too small. So I see this all the time, and this is usually my first giveaway. This is usually the number one indicator, at least for me, that the book jacket design I'm looking at is self-published. So I've, I've gotten this, this request over and over again throughout the years, make the author name smaller, make the author name smaller. And to some degree, I kind of understand the mentality, the, the argument has always been, well, I'm not a best-selling author or, you know, nobody necessarily knows who I am, so just make it smaller. The problem with that is it, again, it puts the focus in the wrong place. It's not looking at it from the, uh, from the buyer's perspective. If you're taking the time to write a book, people are going to want to know who you are. And that doesn't just, and they don't necessarily have to recognize your name or have seen it on another book before for it to matter to them that you're, what your name is. Because more than likely, they're going to read that name on the back. They're going to read an author bio. They may even have a picture. And so making your, your name smaller, as I've seen so many times before, all that that does is tell the reader right away, okay, this, this author or this, uh, the person who has written this book is either A, ashamed of this or doesn't want their name to be attached to it or just has their name added to it as an afterthought. Now, that's not to say, again, like best-selling authors, that you have to have your name bigger than the title, but it is an important piece and it's something that from a design and a marketing perspective, I look at an author name more as a piece of the design. It's the title and the author name. Those are the two core key elements. Those are the two things that people are going to want to know about first. The imagery, the colors, the typography, and somewhere down there as well, the subtitle will all help that. But who wrote this and what is it about? Those are the first two things people are going to want to know, actually in the opposite order. But those are going to be the first two things that people are going to want to know. So again, it's I get the mentality, get the idea you know, you're writing this, you don't necessarily, you're not a best-selling author, but you took the time to write the book. Um, so treat it more as a, as a, a design element than, you know, pronouncing how, uh, I guess, how influential you may or may not think that your name is to potential readers. Okay, so number three is, an empl is employing overused symbolic cliches that have little or nothing to do with the book. So this is another pretty common one, uh, common one among uh, self-published books. So this will be something like you'll have a memoir, you'll have a book about, uh, I don't know, a historical book or even fiction that has a sunset on it. 
or it just has a mountain range or you know sometimes those things can make sense i've even designed like you know des- uh, like devotional type books in the past before that have like a mountain range or a landscape and they're there in you know with the attitude of or the idea of trying to create a tranquil you know scenery or something that portrays peace or something like that so it's loosely tied in there but i've seen a lot of books throughout the years that feature a sunset or feature a beach scene or that feature something that have absolutely nothing to do with the title or the topic at hand so as i mentioned in the you know the previous uh you know number every single you know the title is a design element and so is the imagery so in the same way that the title and the subtitle and even the author name are to work together as a great you know as a greater cohesive whole in terms of the overall design every image should serve the purpose of helping to convey what the mood is of the book what the subject matter is and how it can properly appeal to the person who may want to read it number four this is more process oriented is requesting feedback and advice from everyone except a book designer or a marketer so this one again has come up time and again and it's i've always found it a little bit baffling because and it's not just me i've actually seen this with other designers who you know have worked with traditional publishing houses and how you know they'll run polls or quizzes or they'll you know talk to their neighbor or their family and all these different people and get feedback about the cover which is great by the way it's a wonderful thing to do to get as much feedback as you possibly can on a design so that you sometimes other people see things that you don't Where you can run into problems, however, is allowing a committee or allowing people who aren't necessarily, you know, immersed in the, you know, art and science of designing and marketing a book, getting design direction from, you know, other individuals. The best way I could kind of illustrate this would be going to your dentist and getting a root canal performed, but then insisting on dictating the way and the method that that root canal is to be performed. You know, the different types of drugs to use or, uh, you know, how to sterilize the area, the tooth itself or whatever is done to perform a root canal, dictating to the dentist how to do that. Now, I'm not saying that a designer necessarily goes through the level of formal training as a dentist, obviously not. But the same principle applies. Part of designing, of hiring a a designer isn't just for the act of designing it, but it's the years of expertise that that person has gained and understanding and experience in doing that particular trade. So one of the pieces of advice I always like to give is try to get as much as you possibly can out of your designer. Try to get thoughts and feedback and work together with them. Again, outside feedback is wonderful and it's great to get and it's great to collect and it always gives, it provides extra an extra uh, point of view that you may not have considered before but when it comes to making specific design decisions always rely first and and foremost on the person with the most experience in that particular department okay so number five is utilizing designers who don't understand the book market or who just don't have experience with it so this is a this is a pretty common one specifically with new authors so if you go to you know there's a lot of different places out there where you can post jobs to 
you know, different design websites or different design services. And you can get people to bid on them. And sometimes you can actually find some pretty good designers out there, people who have done, you know, website design or even poster design or even brand identity design. But as I touched on a little bit previously, book jacket design is its own animal. There is a, there is a way to design a book jacket um, that is far and removed from a lot of different other types of design out there. The best way I could, the best other form of design I could compare it to would be billboard and advertising design. Because it's not like designing a logo. It's not necessarily like building a website or designing that. A logo is much more simplistic. A website is much more complex. But a, a book cover design falls somewhere in the middle. And the goal of a book cover design is to be a form of visual communication. A book jacket has to be as clear and as readable and as concise as possible. What you're doing is you're taking months and possibly even years of an author's hard work and distilling it down to its finest essence. So, you know, we've got packaging design, you know, for things like Lucky Charms and Cheerios, which just contains a product. But a book contains what could be a wealth or a mass of information or ideas. So it's a unique challenge to take those ideas and to distill them down to one graphical representation. So that's why book cover design in and of itself, even as simple as a lot of these, some of the best designs turn out to be, is in itself a, a tough animal to, uh, to wrestle down. So that's why it's so important. If you're going to be working with a designer to design your next book jacket, make sure it's one who is well-versed in the art and science of book jacket design. Number six is one I've actually touched on a little bit earlier in some degree, to some degree, and that is injecting personal tastes into a book's design concept. So I, t I touched on this earlier a little bit, so I won't go into it uh, with too much detail, but specifically for a book jacket design, this is the type of thing that can actually turn a design the completely opposite direction. So if somebody were, uh, you know, writing a book about grief but at the moment that they're writing it, you know, they want to try to portray happiness because, they, you know, they don't want it to look like a sad book. It's that type of thing that can actually confuse or turn someone away. If somebody actually is struggling with grief, there is a certain look and a style that's going to show someone immediately that that's the topic that this is covering. Um, so if I put a sunset on there with somebody jumping in the air through a wheat field – they're going to skim over it because, they're, no, that's not a grief book. So it's little things like that, not only personal interests, but the way that something is approached, uh, always making sure that the subject matter is first and foremost in terms of how the design is directed and the decisions that are made on it. Okay, and number seven is one that we have touched on a little bit earlier in this episode, and it is attempting to be clever with the typefaces. So don't be clever with typefaces, meaning that don't try to be overly fanciful with typefaces. Uh, when in doubt, go simple. So rather than trying to use Edwardian scripts to try and grace the cover of your romance novel, first take a step back and make sure that you can read that title from a thumbnail size. And if you can't, switch to something else, uh, especially when it comes to titles. 
see again there's there is certain circum design circumstances when a decorative typeface works well uh, but when it comes to a marketable book jacket design most of the time that's not it again one of the best ways that you can approach a book jacket design is a billboard i need to be able to see this thing and read it quickly it's not necessarily that the design itself has to pop as is a you know a common phrase that likes to get used it doesn't necessarily have to you know shout in your face but it does have to be readable. Okay, number eight is copying other books. So this is a big no-no, and specifically copying other books in your niche. The goal of an effective book jacket design is to convey the message that you know the book, uh, the book portrays or the book is about, uh, but to do so in a unique manner. You know, some of the best book jacket designs I've seen are the ones that surprise you. They don't surprise you by doing something that is, uh, you know, wrong or completely, you know, far and removed from the topic. It fits the topic, but it doesn't do it like the book next to it. It stands out. It's different. It's unique. Sometimes it's just simplicity or the typefaces that are used or the arrangement of type or the way it's cut off or a more artistic and creative approach to that same topic. So again, when you copy another book, you steal away um, you steal away the differentiation that can help make your book stand out from that crowd. Number nine is hiding personal symbolic messaging into the imagery of the design. So like, for example, if you're writing a memoir and there's a really personal, important story that you want to try to convey on, uh, convey on the front, it's really detailed. It's got, you know, a lamppost, a little girl who sees her, the reflection of the moon of a puddle in the street. And it's, you know, supposed to convey all of this hidden meaning and all of these things that ties into the story. Yeah, don't do that on your cover. <laughs> I think, you know, from a writer's perspective, details are great. It's little details like that that make writing Fun to read, interesting to read, not on a book jacket. When it comes to a book jacket, you got a couple of seconds to get someone's attention and to convey a point. So the goal is always to take a complex idea, as I touched on a little bit earlier, and to refine that down to its most simplest, quickly recognizable essence. And number 10, similarly, is overcomplicating the cover's message. Now, this doesn't only happen through really crazy imagery. So like the imagery example I just gave, that would be an example of this, but it can happen through other things like having a title that's way too long. A lot of times a title works best when it's anywhere from one to three words. Sometimes you can get away with something a little bit longer, but the shorter the title, generally the better, because that means that the designer has more you know flexibility with how to place that title how to spread that title out or how to make that title huge or a lot more flexibility to place that as a design element so the length of a title the length of a subtitle uh, and the amount of imagery the more simple and more refined down to a specific point uh, the more the more effective that finalized design is going to be Okay, so that's the top 10, and these are actually all polled. Um, these are, I'll probably be changing these up and updating these over time, but they're all actually pulled from an ebook I wrote a little while back. Um, 
on this, the topic of book jacket design, and it's called Book Covers That Sell, and it's actually totally free. So if you'd like to grab this ebook, you can read through it, and it'll give you some extra ideas and tips and, in terms of building an effective book jacket design. You can find that. I just got that over at rightlydesign.com, and if you click the ebooks, the ebooks tab or the ebooks link in the navigation, you'll be able to get to that. So I hope you found that useful. I think these are just things I've seen over the years of doing book jacket designs. And I think as long as you sidestep a lot of these things, you're going to be pretty, you're going to be leagues ahead of a lot of other authors who seem to uh, pretty commonly fall into a lot of these design mistakes. So again, I hope you found that useful. And as always, if you got a question for the show, you're more than welcome to call 888-727-1496. Again, that's 888-727-1496. If you'd like to ask a question for the program, something that I can possibly take on for a full-length episode and dive into in depth. Uh, but I would like to thank you again for taking the time to listen to the program today. And we'll see you next week. Enjoying the Rightly Designed show? Please consider taking a quick moment to leave us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or the channel of your choice. Visit rightlydesigned.com show for links to these channels and more.